Well, a big shout out to any fathers that are here and for those people visiting fathers. Uh, today is kind of one of those interesting days at church because you, you rock up and there's always different people here. Um, but w- welcome if you're, you're visiting here. Um, my name is Peter. I'm one of the, the people that uh, are normally part of this church. Um, at the moment, I've been coming to, my, to the second service. Um, so it's kind of really weird to stand up here and see different faces that I haven't seen for quite a few weeks. But it, it's good to be able to come and share. Um, Father's Day. I remember nearly 20 years ago when I became a father. You know, it's, it's hard to believe that Logan's nearly 20. It kind of shocks me. It makes me realize I'm old. Um, but I can remember that day when he was born, and you get such a thrill. And I think, you know, as Logan's grown up, he's gone through many different stages. But probably the one that stands out to me the most is that kind of zero to two. Because... When Logan was born, he didn't do much. He kind of, he, he slept, he ate, he cried, and he made a mess. And that was kind of all he did. Um, but then after a while, he learned to smile. He developed his sense of personality. He, he learned to crawl. He learned to walk. He learned to start doing things on his own. Um, and it was amazing just that, that transformation in that first couple of years. And if you've been a parent, it's just a joy to watch. And then around two, you get to the terrible twos, and it becomes really frustrating. Because suddenly they want to do things themselves. They want to get independent. They learn the word no, and they use it all the time. And as a parent, um, particularly in the mornings, it always seems to be the mornings, um, you're trying to get out the door. And this kid just will not cooperate because they want to do it their way and they want to, you know, they want to put on their shoes themselves, they want to put on their clothes themselves. And all you want to do is dress them quickly, you know, and bundle them out the door and and get on with your day. Because oftentimes as a parent, we want to to get the short-term tasks done, you know, that job on our to-do list, you know, that we have to get through the day. And sometimes we forget to look at the long-term picture of what we're trying to do with that child and raise them up to be independent um, and one day to to leave the nest. And parenting is all that that juggling between the the getting the job at hand done, you know, the immediate task versus the long-term, we want a child who who grows up to be a young man and woman of God who's independent, who can make their own way in, in the world. And that's, that's what parenting is about. It's just wrestling with that. And we struggle as parents because oftentimes we want to control things and we want to um, focus on the immediate, the right now, the thing I have to do today. You know, life's a little bit like that because there's lots of things that it's very easy to get focused on the right here and now. You know, we, we plan, we, we put things in place, we, we want to control things and to have things work out. And when they don't work out, it gets extremely frustrating. I know my wife is always reminding me, you know, I'm a, a recovering control freak. I want to have everything sorted out before it happens, and it's better go according to plan, because I've put in the work up front, and it should. And then when it doesn't, I get really annoyed. And today we're going to be looking at a passage of somebody who was in that situation, who had a task at hand, wanted to sort everything out, 
but there is a bigger picture at play. So let's have a, if you've got your Bibles, let's turn to 1 Samuel chapter 13. 1 Samuel chapter 13. We've been working through the, the, the book of 1 Samuel. Um, we, we've had the, the, just to put it in context, uh, the, the people have been crying out for a king because they looked around and they've seen the other people around them, other people groups around them, and they've got a king and things are going well for them. Um, so they, they cried out to God and said, give us a king. And God said, you really didn't, don't want a king. But they said, no, give us a king. And they said, okay, you can have a king. And they, 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 um, God gave them Saul. Uh, so we pick up in verse 2. We're going to start at verse 2 um, of chapter 13. Saul chose 3,000 men from Israel. 2,000 were with him at Michmash and, and in the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan at Gibeah in Benjamin. The rest of the men he sent back to their homes. Now, to put this in kind of context, the people of Israel at this time are subsistence farmers. That means they grow what they need to live. They don't go to jobs kind of like we do and we get paid in money and then we go to the grocery store and buy the food that we need. They have land and they plant the vegetables, they plant the fruit trees, they, they, they have some sheep and goats and you know, things like that. And what they grow, they eat. They might have a little bit left over that they trade with a, a neighboring person, but basically, you know, it's hand to mouth. They grow, they eat. So in order to have a standing army, for Saul to actually say, I am going to take 3,000 men away from their farms, away from their kind of livelihoods, and to, to be my standing army, that's a big deal. Because somebody's got to feed those 3,000 people. Somebody's got to clothe them. Somebody's got to get them weapons. Somebody's got to do all of that. So this is a big thing. It's a big innovation. And, you know, where, where they met is in the, the hill country. If we can flick up the map. Um, so here, here we have kind of zo zoomed in of the, the map of Israel, and we've got kind of the, the Dead Sea down here. We've got the, uh, the um, uh, up the top, the, the Sea of Galilee. I've just chopped it off because I want to zoom in. And we've got kind of, to give you some reference points, that, that's Jerusalem. The area that we're talking about is right here. And in that pink area here is the area that the, the Jewish people had settled at that stage. And then down here in the coastal area is where the Philistines were. Now, because we read the Bible and kind of the Jewish people are the focus of the Old Testament, we often think that they got the best land, but they didn't. See, the main road from Egypt way down here up through to the other, other powers, the, the highway number one ran along right up here. So that's highway one. And down, down this area, is the, is the beautiful, lush, low-lying ground. It's, it's like the Waikato. You know, it's the good land. You know? Because you plant stuff there and it grows well. Up here, that's all the hill country. You know, the bottom part was called the hill country of Judea. 
And the top part was called, ended up being called the hill country of Samaria. So you've got the two, two hill countries. It's okay. It's, it's not brilliant. You know, you, you grow sheep and, and goats there and you, you eke out a little bit of vegetables and, and fruits and stuff, but it's not like, it's not like the really lush down here. And right in the middle, you, you see this little kind of bump here. It's kind of like a valley that goes in there. And, and this, is, this is where the, the story that we're looking at today happens, right in there. So Saul's got, you know, a couple of thousand people, and, and he's kind of just up here in the north of that area. And Jonathan's got a thousand, and he's kind of sitting there. And they're, they're kind of looking out over this outcrop. You know, the, the, uh, of the, the Philistine encampment. And um, so that's kind of where we are. Now, for the last 400 years, there's kind of been a, a moving border between the people of Israel and the Philistines. Sometimes the Philistines were, were more powerful and they would kind of encroach and take the land. And the people would cry out, and we've got it recorded in Judges. They'd cry out to God, and God would raise up a judge for them to kind of push the Philistines back. Um, now, land is a big deal for the people of Israel. Because remember, they're, they're subsistence farmers. So you lose your land, you lose your livelihood. You can't feed your family. It's like us losing our jobs and not having a doll to kind of fall back on. It's a big deal. And at this stage, the Philistines are the stronger people, and they're pushing back. And that's why the people of Israel were asking for a king, because they could see their land slowly being taken over, bit by bit. And they're going, well, we can't feed our families. If we lose the land, if we lose God's promise, we lose everything. So that's the reality of what they're facing. So let's pick up the story in uh, verse 3. Jonathan attacked the Philistine outpost at Gibeah, and the Philistines heard about it. Then Saul had the trumpet blown throughout the land and said, let the Hebrews hear. So all the Israel heard the news. Saul was, has attacked the Philistine outpost, and now Israel has become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were surrounded, summoned to Saul at Gilgal. The Philistines assembled to fight Israel with 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, and soldiers that were numerous as the sand on the seashore. They went up and camped at Michmash, east of Beth-Avon. When the people of Israel saw that their situation was critical and that their army was hard-pressed, they hid in caves and thickets among the rocks and in pits and cisterns. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul remained at Gilgal, and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. So the situation is, you know, Jonathan gets in there, uh, manages to overrun a, a Philistine outpost. Nice, quick victory. You know, Saul sends the message throughout all Israel, look, everybody, let's come on down, let's, let's reinforce this area because, you know, we've, we've had a victory here and we need to claim it. Meanwhile, the, the, the Philistine commanders find out about it and they gather their army. 
and it, it talks about chariots, 3,000 chariots. Now, the chariots were, were equivalent of the modern-day sort of battle tank. You know, they, these, these are the, the ultimate weapon. Here, Saul got 3,000 soldiers in total. The Philistines come with 3,000 chariots plus all the rest of the army. That many people moving through there, you're going to see from a long way off. That many people moving by foot, you know, those wheels of the chariots turning, it's going to kick up a lot of dust. They would have seen that coming. And as any good commander would have done, they would have sent out some scouts, checked it out, reported back, and it's like, oh, we, we can't win this. And they would have just slowly melted back into the hills that surrounded that plain. And the Philistines come and they, they, they take back the area that the, the Israelites had, had conquered. And it, and it talks about them being so afraid that they're hiding in caves and thickets and cisterns. They're kind of hunkering down on the hills overlooking. What a demoralizing picture. You know? They've had an easy victory and now it's been taken away from them and it's like the situation's got even worse. Because, you know, there's this great army there about to, to, to wipe them out. And each day they wait, Saul will be looking around and going, oh, we're missing a few over here. We're missing a few over here. On some more. And you can imagine, you know, they're quietly slipping away at night. And some of, you know, it even talks about them going over the Jordan to the other side. So here we have some of the most courageous men in Israel who've looked at the situation and have said, this is absolutely hopeless. I'm willing to abandon the promise of God that this land is ours and I'm, I'm hightailing it out of here. And Saul's looking, you know, each day this goes on, it's getting worse. How do I rescue this situation? Let's pick up the story in, in verse 8. He, being Saul, waited seven days, the time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter. So he said, bring me the burnt offerings and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offering. Just as he, just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived. And Saul went out to greet him. What have you done? asked Samuel. Saul replied, When I saw that the men were scattering and that they did not come at the set, and you had not come at the set time and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offerings. You acted foolishly, Samuel said. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him leader of his people, because you have not kept the Lord's command. Then Samuel left Gilgal and went up to Gibeah 
in Benjamin, and Saul counted the men who were with him. They numbered about 600. Earlier in the book of Samuel, we're told that, that, Saul, uh, that Samuel had specifically told Saul, wait for me over there for seven days, and then I'll come and tell you what to do. So Saul waited those seven days. Looking down at that enemy that was amassing in front of him. Remember they're hiding in the, the caves and the thickets and all of that, looking down on this enemy. And each day he's seeing some of his people just quietly slip away. And his army shrinking, slowly, slowly shrinking. And it gets to the end of the seventh day and he's going, well, I've waited, I've done my part. And he sacrifices. And just as he's finished, Samuel appears. And you must, he must have been relieved, like, oh, finally, Samuel's here. Okay, Samuel, right, we've done the sacrifices, we're ready to go, what do I need to do? You know, what's the battle plan? What, you know, how, how, how are we going to defeat the enemy? And Samuel's reaction is, oh, you, you fool. You've missed the whole point. You are so focused on the here and now that you've missed the point. And it's interesting that Samuel does not rebuke him for offering the sacrifice. Samuel rebukes him for not following the instructions, which was to wait. He wasn't in trouble for offering the sacrifices. He was in trouble because he did not wait. He did not follow the instruction. See, by acting, Saul was taking control. He was saying, right, I need to control this. I need to make things happen. Let's go. Instead of waiting for God to act in his time. See, by acting, Saul was trying to manipulate the situation. So, okay, if I offer these sacrifices right I've, you know, I've ticked that off. God's happy with me. Let's go. You know, you've, you've kind of blessed this thing. We've prayed about it. Let's go. By acting, Saul was focused on the short-term problem. It was a big problem, but it was a short-term problem of the, the enemy down there that he could see. Instead of the, the big picture of what God wanted from the people of Israel, which was to be the people of God and to be a blessing to the, the peoples around them. The big picture, what God was all about with the people of Israel. Instead, he focused on the short term. And by acting, Saul ended up with the thing that he feared most. He started out with 3,000, talks at the end of those seven days when he's, he's finished offering those sacrifices you know, Samuel said, you fool. He counts as many as he ends up with 600. You know, the very thing he feared, he ended up having. But the biggest one is by acting and not waiting, Saul demonstrated that in the end he was not a man after God's own heart. And this phrase, a man after God's own heart, is so critical to the whole book of Samuel, 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. 
And if we take a, a step back for a moment to kind of look at those two books as a, as a big picture, they, they ask the question, what does it mean to be a man or a woman after God's own heart? And because it's narrative, it gives us um, the main characters there for us to kind of measure our life up against and compare ourselves to. And there's two pairs of characters. Right at the beginning, we've already looked at them. There's Eli and there's Samuel. Eli was a, the high priest. He was going through the motions. He was doing what he needed to do. But it talks early on in, in the book of Samuel. You might have heard that phrase, you know, the word of the Lord did not come often. Because Eli had grown dull to the word of the Lord. He wasn't listening. You remember he was also somebody that, that, that got um, called out for, not, for following the routines of the religious life without um, following through on, on, on the calling out um, and, and the, the social justice issues. Because he had two sons that were sinning and harming the people of God, and he did not pull them up and say, hey, that's not on. Cut it out. That is going against God's commandments. Because he didn't do that, um, you know, he was, in essence, not a man after God's own heart. But in comparison, then you have Samuel, who God spoke to. Remember that, you know, when he was a young boy and he heard God's voice and he acted upon it. And he also spoke out when the, the, against popular opinion when the people said, we want a king. And Samuel said, no, you don't want a king. This is not God's will for you. This is not something that you want. He was willing to speak out even against public opinion. So you've got those two contrasts between Eli and Samuel. One, after, one who's had the, the heart of God and the other one who didn't. Then in this section, it's, it's the, the start of the, the two comparisons between Saul, which we learn about now, and later David, which is going to come in, in future chapters. And, and Saul had it all. He was from a prominent family. He was physically impressive. He was tall. He was muscular. He, he was a man's man. Um, but he put the short-term goal, short-term thinking, instead of the big picture of what God wanted with the people of Israel in terms of walking by faith. And he tried to manipulate the situation. In comparison... As you read the, the book of Samuel, you find out that God calls David. Kind of the opposite. He was the, the youngest brother. He was overlooked. In fact, when his father lined up all the, all the sons for, you know, to, to get possibly, you know, pick, pick the one, um, he was actually left in the field. He was kind of like, oh, he's just the runt of the family. He's unfairly treated. Lots of times he was accused of things and that he didn't do. 
You know, Saul tried to, to, to murder him several times. And even though he had the promise that one day he would be king, he patiently waited until God provided the situation for him to be king. He had ample opportunity to get rid of Saul, and he chose not to. So here we have the, these, these two big characters, Saul and David, and all the way through, as we're working through the book of Samuel, just keep that in the back of your mind. You're comparing those two, and you're answering the question, what does it mean to be a man or a woman after God's own heart? And looking here, we have that first kind of glimpse of it because Saul acted foolishly. He thought of the immediate kind of pressing need, the immediate problem at hand, and he didn't have that long-term thing here. What's the big picture of God? what God wants to do in this situation? And that's why he was not acting after man, after God's own heart. And then we pick up the story in verse 16. And this is an odd, odd bit of scripture, but actually makes sense in the bigger, bigger thing. Samuel said to his son Jonathan, and the men with him were, with him were staying at Gibeath in Benjamin, while the Philistines camped at Michmash. Raiding parties went out from the Philistine camp in three detachments. One towards Ophrah in the vicinity of Shul, another towards Beth Horon, and the third uh, towards the borderland overlooking the valley of Zebuin, facing the desert. Not a blacksmith could be found in the whole land of Israel because the Philistines had said, otherwise the Hebrews were still making swords or spears. So all of Israel went down to the Philistines to have their plowshares, mattocks, axes and sickles sharpened. The price was two-thirds of a shekel for sharpening plowshares and mattocks and a third of a shekel for sharpening forks and axes and for repointing goads. So on the day of the battle, not a soldier with Saul and Jonathan had a sword or a spear in his hand. Only Saul and his son Jonathan had them. Now you read that point and you kind of go, I have... Why did they put that in? You know, it would have been so easy just to you know, skip those words, save a bit of paper, you know, let's, let's kind of move on. Um, but there's an important point here. Samuel's rebuke of Saul was public. And if you've ever in a public situation, like I'm, I'm a teacher, um, so w when things happen in public, I kind of have to deal with them in public. If I'm in a classroom and a kid is being defiant and I've been called in by the teacher because, you know, there's a stand-up and, the, you know, this, this kid won't do what he's told, etc., I have to deal with it because you can't let the kid kind of get away with it or else, you know, the teacher's credibility is chopped down in front of everybody. Okay, same situation here with uh, Saul. Saul's been called foolish in front of all his men. That's a big call. You know, the, the, the commander, the king, and he's just been kind of cut down. 
So what does Saul do? He counts his people. He goes, okay, I've got 600. 600 against 3,000 chariots plus a whole lot of soldiers. Yeah, yeah, I reckon I can probably do that. You know, it just doesn't make sense. But he still sends his people out and he divides them into three groups and says, okay, yeah, 300, you know, 200 go this way and 200 go this way and 200 go this way and let's it's kind of battle plan. See, either he had to repent and say, look, I have really overstepped the mark here. Or he had to brush it off and with some sort of bold action. And he chose the bold action. And then we have that really strange part that it talks about the blacks. There was no blacksmiths in, in the people of Israel and they had to go to the Philistines to get their stuff sharpened. That's really important because the punchline right at the end, the 600 men he had left with them did not have any proper weapons between them. We have Saul and Jonathan with the sword, and everybody else has got improvised weapons. They've, they've taken their, their sickle, they've taken their plowshare or they, they, something, and they've, they've sharpened bits of metal, and they've kind of jury-rigged something, and they're going up against 6,000 chariots plus a whole lot of soldiers with proper weapons. It doesn't make sense. And that's the whole point. They were never supposed to win the battle through strength of arms. Right at the end, we find even if all 3,000 soldiers had stayed there with Saul, he wasn't going to win because he was the strongest army. He didn't have the best weapons. He didn't have a, you know, the, the biggest army. He had to rely on God right from the start. And God makes a point. Yes, he allows, you know, he's very gracious and Saul wins the battle. In fact, it's quite a convincing win. But it's very obvious right from, this, right from that point that it's God who's fighting the battle. Because Saul's short-term focus was, how can I use, you know, the, the men I've got to win the battle. God's bigger picture was, how can I um, help the Israelites walk by faith and trust in me, even though they have a king? Because they might have an earthly leader, but in the end, I am their leader. I am the person that they're following. And that was the big point. They needed to walk by faith to be men and women after God's own heart. And that's what God was trying to teach them in that situation. And it took a while for some of the Israelites to learn that. And unfortunately, Saul never learned that. And the question you have to keep on asking yourself through there is which person are you most like? As you read the book of Samuel, are you like Eli? going through the motions? Are you like Samuel, hearing and acting on the word of God? Are you like Saul, focused on the problem at hand, not the big picture? 
Or are you like David when we find out eventually who despite all his failings, and man, he had some big ones, wanted to walk in faith with God? That's the question we all have to answer. Let's pray. Father, thank you for for giving us an insight into what you want. Father, help us to be men and women who don't look at the immediate problems that we have right now, but look at the big picture of what you are wanting us to become and to walk by faith and to grow in our love and our relationship with you. In Jesus' name, amen. 